0: Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. You're in the right place for all things regenerative living, ecological restoration, permaculture, and natural building. I'm your host, Oliver Gauthier. In this show, it's my job to interview leaders, innovators, and rebels on the cutting edge of their fields as we look for solutions to our generation's most urgent challenges and share these techniques and information so that you can join us in creating a healthy and abundant world for everyone. So let's get started. New Society Publishers is proud to be celebrating 40 years of activist, solutions-oriented publishing. From our roots in nonviolent civil disobedience training during the Vietnam War, to today with over 500 books published, some across a dozen languages, we continue to bring positive solutions and cutting-edge ideas to some of the most troubling challenges of our time. Having never wavered from our mission to help build a just and ecologically sustainable society, placing planet and people before profit, we are proud to hold the highest environmental and social standards of any publisher in North America. With a dedicated community of changemakers and thought leaders always working ahead of the curve, we look forward to another 40 years of bringing our readers books
1: for a world of change.
0: Alright, welcome back family and friends to this ongoing series on Waterway Regeneration. Now, I've covered so many approaches to this subject up until now, And over the last two weeks, I've been exploring regenerative solutions to the environmental degradation of marine ecosystems. And so today, we'll be looking closely at some creative ways of protecting and even reseeding coral reefs in my interview with Celia Gregory. So Celia is the founder of the Marine Foundation, an eco-arts organization that uses art for change, not only in awareness and education, but also directly in the restoration of coral reef habitats, fish stocks, and associated provision of livelihood. Celia has over 25 years directing and managing a varied selection of creative projects around the world. And having completed her PADI Pro Dive Master in Costa Rica back in 2004, she was inspired to take her creative process under the sea, developing art in symbiosis with marine conservation. From there she created the Living Sculptures in the Sea program, an international series of underwater sculptures and creative collaboration of local communities, conservation organizations, science, and the creative arts. Now through the Marine Foundation, Celia has successfully developed projects in several international locations, facilitating programs for local communities. Now I first got to know Celia as a co-instructor with me on the Ecosystem Restoration Design course with Guy Education, and I was fascinated by her unique approaches to community collaboration through culturally representative art. In this interview, though, we certainly talk a lot about the specifics of coral habitat restoration and the urgent need to create reserves and sanctuaries to revive coastal areas that have been destroyed. We also focus a lot on Celia's remarkable stories from the communities that she's worked with to accomplish these projects. I myself have worked mostly with local communities and countries that were foreign to me, and I really connected with the compassionate and inclusive approach that Celia speaks to from her own experience. I've always found that the community aspect of regenerative projects is the most overlooked in the design and the planning stage. While some enterprises eventually find success with weak community integration, the ones that create long-lasting and holistic solutions are the ones that are built around the needs, wants, and cultural nuance of the places where they're based. Ownership and responsibility centered around the people of that place are points that Celia makes and that I've learned to emphasize in all the projects that I work with as well. This is one of my favorite chats from this series and I hope it encourages you to reflect and reevaluate as much as it did for me. So with that said, I'll hand things over to Celia. Hey Celia, thanks so much for being with me today. It's great to have you on the podcast. How are things going with you?
1: My pleasure, It's, it's a beautiful morning here in Aspen. So yeah, very nice, happy to be here.
0: Now, I'm surprised to hear that you're so far away from the shore side since you're mostly known for your work with the marine Foundation and coral reefs what brought you out there
1: well I met my I met my husband in Bali when I was working in Bali which is where I did a lot of my work in Indonesia and and then we came back to Aspen um, to he was a, he's an architect here and um, I'm an artist I mean my involvement in marine conservation comes from an art perspective you know, an art perspective, My partner was scientists. So, um, you know, coming here um, was that, I just continued with my kind of design career and, um, but still, you know, a very active in marine conservation. I'm presently partnered with Fabien Cousteau, who I'm thrilled to be um, working with, who I met up here actually. So I find that fun that I would meet my, one of my heroes again, so far away from the sea. Um, But it has been very interesting for me to be away from the sea, obviously, um, engaging in um, ocean issues close to the oceans fairly easy. Um, but I was very interested in how, you know, people related to the ocean when they're not close to it. So um, it's been a, an, an interesting learning curve for me in, in that sense.
0: It's a very important key to kind of connect in with all of this. And tell me, how did your passion for the care of coral and ocean ecosystems begin seen as you like you said you consider yourself mostly an artist
1: yeah so I um I mean I've always been passionate about conservation um you know I grew up gardening and living in the land and I was very fortunate to be able to kind of have that lovely relationship with nature as a child so I always found it um, a great inspiration for me um, my love of nature fuels my creativity I mean I essentially believe everything here on this planet is creating you know and um, whether that's a flower or, or an artist um, and I started to scuba dive that was actually really what kind of got me really involved I started to scuba dive and surf and, and spend more time by the sea but really it was my scuba diving that enabled me to go under the water and see you know what was happening close at hand um, coral reefs are very pretty so you, when you dive it's one of the great attractions. Um, But I was also at the same time able to see, you know, what was happening um, and how the decline in the ocean health was occurring. Um, But then equally was able to learn about artificial reef technology and the techniques of coral gardening and, you know, creating habitat for fish and the whole kind of marine um, conservation approach, marine protected areas. And um, certainly here was a man-made object that was going into the sea um, that now was serving a a purpose that was Positive, um, and I loved the fact that people got kind of so excited about like a shipwreck when they dived, and I was really able to see how you know people loved that kind of storyline, and and I just saw the scope really for kind of merging art and conservation, and and that's really how it all started was this desire to now take my art and make something that had a kind of dual purpose and wasn't just a visual thing, was now actually you know doing good, so that's really how my passion started.
0: Well, so let's break it down as to how you came about creating artwork for marine ecosystems and how they play a bigger role in the health and the rejuvenation of coral reefs specifically.
1: I mean, it, yeah, it starts I mean, it starts really. I mean, it started really. I think because, as I say, when you dive, one of the great attractions is a is a shipwreck, and um, people love to go and dive these shipwrecks and these. You know, the moment you put anything in the sea. Um, that's animals are looking essentially for somewhere to kind of hide, they're looking for somewhere to attach to. So, you know, the moment you put something in the ocean, things will kind of congregate around it, but people particularly noticed that these metal structures, corals were settling on them and they, you know, they'd become very vibrant and alive. Um, And so I found myself meeting scientists and meeting, you know, local conservationists, people that were starting to explore ways to help, regenerate the reefs and the coral reefs that were starting to suffer from lots of destructive things that were occurring. So on a very practical level, um, when I first started doing this, people were starting to explore coral gardening, this idea that we can, you know, our relationship to the sea up until that point was very destructive it was very, you know, we just took things out, we take the fish out, we just took what we wanted. Um, but now we're through coral gardening and, and, and creating marine protected areas. You start to have a more positive relationship to the sea where actually we're kind of cultivating something good. Um, so with my artworks, what I was trying to do is, you know, you stop fishermen from fishing and things like this. You know, these people need a livelihood. So you can't really do successful conservation unless you address the economics of the community that depend on it. So. By um, exploring and working with ecotourism and merging these scientific ideas with art, we now create this kind of very beautiful interface where people can kind of dive and, and experience these artworks and, you know, have a very positive interaction with the natural environment. Maybe, in, you know, I mean, everybody was always very much like, oh, you just should leave it natural. But there's lots of places in the world that no longer kind of are natural any, anymore. So. The work that we do with the community, with scientists, with artists, helps create new economy whilst kind of creating a motivation to look after the sea, meanwhile supporting activities and scientists in learning what best practice is really in terms of coral propagation and coral gardening.
0: And give me a little bit of a timeline about how this came together, because I'm sure listeners are going to be curious as to, okay, so you've got the idea of, putting something in the ocean that acts as sort of a seed for coral to grab onto and to start to regenerate the lost ecosystem that was there. And how did this come into the marine foundation and the necessary elements to turn it into something that could look for funding and get the resources necessary to do projects?
1: I mean, I always worked with local communities um, in areas where they've already are already looking to do an environmental endeavor. Um, I mean I helped people set things up but it was always with local partners so I was always looking for I mean I worked with Coral Reef Alliance in Indonesia and Coral Triangle and Coral you know local people so they were working with the, the local communities already and um I saw some of them already had existing coral gardening programs. So, you know, different places were using different techniques. So for example, one of the scientific methods that I've worked a lot with is BioRock and it's a scientist out of America. And that's a technique where they actually use um, a mild electrical current to help enhance coral growth. Um, this is a transplanting technique where we actually take little bits of coral and actually plant them specifically on the sculptures. Other techniques are more like where we use natural settling. So we would use like reef bowl ideas where we create habitat for fish um, and then things naturally settle on them. Um, In terms of getting funding, it was more, you know, the ecotourism hotels sponsoring it, um, trying to kind of, I mean, it wasn't necessarily the easiest model for funding because, you know, when you're creating an art piece, there's probably, those art pieces are gonna be more expensive than maybe just putting like a coral table in. So sometimes it was a little bit challenging to kind of persuade people to go for that kind of added value. But, um, you know, in terms of raising awareness, that was really how we were able to kind of get the funding in terms of raising awareness, you know, enabling communities to um, bring artists in, to to create um, positive stories. Um, And, you know, the idea that, you know, you could help put money into ecotourism, help people make a living through becoming divers and tour guides um, and then in that way helping a new generation kind of move away from you know doing fishing and, and extractive kind of methods but yeah the funding model funding is always challenging with environmental projects I have to say.
0: <laughs> yeah it's something that I hear a ton from the clients and the projects that I've worked with in the past and this is one of the reasons why I wanted to reach out to you is because I what I can't figure out is if you had sort of a general plan in the beginning of how all of these pieces fit together from reaching out to the community, to the ecosystem, uh, sort of services that would come out of the project, the artwork itself, and the funding model, or if as you got into these places and came up with a preliminary idea, be it... Uh, the art installation going into the damaged ecosystems, you then formed the other pieces around it as you understood the community and the resources available as as it was kind of maturing and, and moving forward.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'd always, I'd always been passionate about ocean issues, um, particularly actually my first interest kind of was, back in the day was kind of, you know, dolphins and how they were kind of catching dolphins in the tuna nets and that they, you know, made me aware of how, mass fishing was you know had massive by bycatches and so it was a subject that i was kind of exploring but it was certainly when i started diving that really something opened up for me um i think when i first started my scuba diving my dive instructor was like could tell that i was seeing the world differently like from an artistic perspective you know it's a very stimulating very beautiful world down there um so yeah i mean i think like any artist no it certainly wasn't something i had a clear idea about it started as a as a passion um you know i just would dive around the world i found myself on boats meeting scientists and so it was just something that i explored um and i had spent a lot of time in indonesia so i'd heard of coral conservation projects i'd then go and visit these places and get to know the team and just see what they were doing and um, and basically what I did notice is that it was very scientific. You know, they were just putting these kind of pretty basic structures in the water. So, um, yeah, I mean, initially I was the one putting money in, you know, I paid, <laughs> paid, you know, to do courses. And then I was on a course in the Gilly Islands um, where they ran a big bio rock course, you know, for like 30 people. I joined it and got to know the head of Gilly Eco Trust, a lovely lady called Delphine Robbie, who's done amazing work there. And I presented the idea to her. and said, oh, well, "If we're just putting these fairly, you know, basic structures in the water, how do you think people would feel about, you know, if we made one of these structures into like to look like a manta ray or a turtle?" And she was like, "Well, if you can persuade our sponsors, their sponsors were the hotels and restaurants on the island, then if they're happy for you to do it, then then go for it." So we so we did. That was how the first one happened. And um, when I was there, I was working with. You know other experts from around indonesia and they were like wow they hadn't really thought about making a turtle or making sculptures out of these things so they then went back to some of their projects that they were doing and then specifically one in um in bali um in permuta and the northwest of bali and i met a lady there and she was like what would you like to do here so then that was how the coral goddess was born you know all done very grassroots funding um and people who just kind of connected to my passion and, you know, people had small kind of funds that they could allocate. And then a lot was given in kind, hotels, boats, diving equipment, you know, huge amounts of stuff was given in kind. So we were able to do a lot of it on just very little money. I mean, I really believe that the languaging that I learned during this stuff was, you know, very different from the normal business, fiscal, conversation that kind of dominates um present business you know it's kind of very obsessional about money going in money coming out you know um people aren't really we're beginning to but we still haven't It hasn't become mainstream enough where we start to value things in our life not based solely on how much it's worth on a money perspective you know we have to start um observing what we can get from not what we can get but what life is offering us that isn't about money you know fresh water clean water good ecosystems um but certainly once i had worked with people and i was working with scientists people became interested in what i was doing and so you know i would be given opportunities to talk people would then offer to become part of little fundraising things that i was doing in the community i was able to win some grants because you know, proof of concept started to kind of evolve out of it. But no, certainly the languaging, what we were doing was evolved as I learned. But I mean, I was in, I'm in, I'm in, was involved and I'm involved in a field I and mean, it's more mainstream now. But when we were starting, it was very much kind of innovative. So the language was being created as we were doing the projects.
0: I really agree with uh, that f- need to find new value systems instead of always thinking about the profits that would come out financially. And I would imagine that that was easier to communicate to the people who were living in the area and directly involved in the ecosystems that were being changed and the the economies that were being transformed as a result. Can you tell me a bit about how the engagement with the community was vital to getting these projects established?
1: Yeah, I mean, Bali, Bali, which is, as I say, where I ended up working a lot, was is a very interesting, has a very interesting community structure. So I was learning from them as much as <laughs> I was contributing to them. You know, in fact, the exchange was 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 valuable both ways in the sense that they have a wonderful sense of community and um, certainly aren't super money orientated and um, in fact, they in Bali they bless the sculptures before they go into the water, which is super magical. Um, what I was able to, you know, what but then a lot of the fishermen they're actually scared of the water. They have kind of cultures that are scared of the water. So even though they fish and are on top of the water, very a few, very few of them will ever actually swim or certainly dive down. So, um, you know, by coming to them with these sculptures and then kind of seeing these sculptures, kind of seeing them being sunk was, you know, it was a, was a fascinating way for them to kind of start to open up their perspective on, on, on the ocean and, and how, you know, these Westerners were kind of coming in and, and valuing it. I think that's, and bringing these sculptures in and obviously caring, I think that really helped them shift their sense of perception and value towards the water. Um, and certainly you know I would work with one community and then they would have a project in for several years and I could get them to come and speak to the other communities and explain to them that you know these things take a little bit of time to mature but you know the investments are worth it and and I think that was also very helpful having you know like a leader of one community because they have these kind of structured leaderships and you know you have these kind of pillars of, of of respect within the community and then they go and speak to the other communities that was super valuable um building community is is definitely um you know for me a lot of what these projects were about you know um in terms of the sculptures and the, the very realities of actually getting these pieces as i say funded and put in the water and managed was a brilliant way of Bringing different sectors together that might not have communicated with each other uh, previously, um, because definitely working together is really you know another key thing that we need to learn to do more effectively. There's a lot of there's a lot of ego in communities. And it's just just you know, and lots of bizarre come things come up to try and stop stuff from happening. We we kind of really like to bicker lots and. <laughs> you know feel important and that can actually stop stuff from happening which is interesting
0: well give me some examples of some of the things that came up that threatened to stop or stall the project and perhaps some ideas or ways that you found to get past them or move through them with the entire community and support
1: i mean for me i mean unless you're and i mean you know you're going to approach these projects one of two ways you're either going to be very established in the community that you're working in, you're coming through this as a member of your own community wanting to start a project in your own community in your own community um, that wasn't necessarily how i was working with another community that i wasn't part of that i got to know but i was essentially i wasn't born and bred in bali do you know what i mean so i would always find local ngos or local figureheads that had already established A very good um, placement within that community so um, that was key for me you know because I was you know the Marine Foundation isn't a managing body we offer our creativity we offer up projects we come in with kind of new ideas and the energy and then a kind of an international connection out Um, so you know suddenly you've got a local community in Bali that through me is now their projects now being seen in London magazines or being talked about in america so um i provide that access from local to international Um, but yeah i think if you're in your own community then obviously that's very different you know you i mean trying to get you're always going to meet opposition this is just the interesting thing there's always going to be somebody that's probably going to disagree with what you do um but yeah you've got to rally you know you've just got to kind of rally up people that support you you know um, you're not going to, something's not going to really happen if you're doing it on your own. It's going to be very, very hard work. And you don't really want to because this is really about kind of group consensus in many ways, you know.
0: Yeah. You mentioned two things there that I really agree with. One, that you're never going to get any project done without some opposition. And rather than seeing it as an obstacle or hurdle, rather that it's a it's a part of the journey. It's a part of the process. And figuring out how to overcome those things not only strengthens the resolve around the people who are committed to them, but can also help you to identify some really key weaknesses or some problems that you might not have seen if everyone was like, yeah, let's just do this on principle, you know? And it gives you that little extra reason to take a critical look at whatever your project is.
1: You know, yeah, I mean, I think we're looking at, you know, we don't always, you know, as an individual, you don't always know best you know and to be able to hear other people's opinions and perspectives is really vital you know people really want to be heard so you know I mean the way that I was doing these projects as I said wasn't hugely money driven you know so I would see I mean I'm going to focus on marine conservation but you know you'd see marine parks being set up and you'd see you know, international NGOs bringing huge amounts of money in to set up that marine park in one way. That's great. You know, here you've got all this money coming in. But then with that money becomes agenda and goals. And these might not these may have been written by somebody who didn't even know that community. You know, Um, plus what you'd see a lot is that then when the money ran out, these kind of organizing bodies would kind of disappear and the communities hadn't been empowered. and, And in many ways, you could say that this money was inefficiently spent actually causing potentially quite a lot of annoyance and and people don't really like these people just coming in and telling them what to do you know or you you know you kind of galvanize support and you know get people involved and you know by working in kind a lot and not paying not not all being about money is that people offered up their services willingly you know offered that up in exchange for doing this project. Um, and I mean, I was always amazed at how things came together. It was like a real gift in terms of seeing a different way things can unfold, that success can be achieved without necessarily having to to throw money at that, you know, because the moment you throw money at people, you know, it's a different dynamic. So that was just a great gift. So I think, you know, exploring, I mean, obviously money is a, Is a huge way of making things happen making things happen when you don't have huge amounts of money is also possible it just is done in a very different way and potentially a more organic way and a potentially more inclusive way so um that's just an interesting um, perspective
0: yeah i completely agree and from my own experiences working on projects around the world the philippines Uh, Guatemala more recently, uh, Senegal especially, that kind of rings true and it makes me think that there are a lot more commonalities around world cultures and communities than there are differences just because, like you mentioned, you know, you can throw money at a problem and it can get a lot of things done, but sometimes when you take a little bit of the longer way and work towards community adoption of a project, um, even though it can take quite a bit longer and it can be much more challenging, it's not only will help you to kind of grow in your own way as far as filling out the project and making sure that it is inclusive to the people that it is involving, but it's much more likely to be longer lasting and something that people help to maintain once it gets established because of taking those extra steps. And I think that seems pretty key to what you've been effective in in getting these projects done in these places.
1: Yeah, I mean, you want to see it. I mean... I mean conservation is about the land um, and, and animals and ecosystems but the reason they're being destroyed is because of human beings and so you know having worked in the field for a while enabling change and is much much more complicated than we really you know that we're only really it's just it's just amazing you know you think that people would evolve and change quickly once they know that what they're doing is destructive but it's it's not quite how it it works you know so um yeah getting people really involved and to really care and you know to have an investment in that um when the, everything is so twinkling and tantalizing in the modern world you know um, well, that's a
0: really good point and i always worry that one of the things that makes it so easy to continue to damage ecosystems is that with every new generation there's something of a loss of understanding of what the ecosystems were like before they were as damaged as they were and we start to lose our reference as to what a really healthy ecosystem in our immediate surroundings can look like and perhaps we start to romanticize it in other places far away that we think of as you know maybe conservation spots where people don't interact with nearly as much and start to think that where we live is is open for destruction and that's just a part of the way that we interact with it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I can think of I, mean, I have one funny story, which is that, you know, you know, again, Westerners go to like places like Bali and, you know, we want to stay in these kind of natural, organic hotels and, you know, bathe under the stars. And then you know, the Indonesians are like, no, I grew up like, give me air conditioning and a TV. <laughs> you guys, sure. So, you know, yeah. So, I mean, you, you know, you are in danger of kind of, you say, that's a really good point of kind of romanticizing that and thinking that because of, you know, here you are living in some kind of urban environment, maybe that. And then you want to go to these kind of, you know, these parts of the world and you kind of romanticize and they don't even want to live like that. So that's one thing that's fascinating. Um,
0: I mean, that goes right along with my own experiences as a natural builder in the early years when I started doing this. Like I was talking about working in Senegal before and we were building mud homes. And, you know, when you go out into the rural areas, they're everywhere. And it's how most people still live in their quality buildings. But in the neighborhood where we were at, which was on the outskirts of Dakar, um, everybody would come by and like, why are you still building with mud? We've moved past that. We're building with cement now, <laughs> and it's really it's a perception thing as much as anything. Even if you know they struggle with quality of you know uh, airflow or thermal capacity and cement buildings that just turn into ovens in the summer. Yeah, you know, it's still seen as some some form of progress. Yeah, Which, I mean, you know, and is, I guess in some ways it certainly is.
1: It's so this is it. I mean, I'm I'm actually recently I'm starting to really. Observe um, the like the goal orientated world that we've become so familiar with. Um, I think is impacting, you know, how we interact with our environment on a moment to moment basis. And I and I think that is massive in terms of you know our relationship to the ecosystem. And I think we're kind of I've I've noticed more that when you're when you're very goal orientated, you know, you're you're push and strive towards that goal getting to that goal becomes more important really than than as you say maybe dealing with somebody that's needs to be dealt with sensitively in that moment you know it's like well I can't deal with you right now I've got this agenda to me you know I've got a deadline mm. to me and and I'm starting to see you know that you know and, I've, well, and then and then that all becomes justified with oh, well, I have to make money I've got I mean you know I've got I mean then people have real ones in terms of having to feed my families I mean I would think of a really good example of just how distorted that becomes is in, and in Bali they had a, and in East Asia they for a long time, they had a technique of dynamiting, catching fish by dynamiting. Um, so this was a strategy where they got dynamite. It was cheaper to get dynamite than it was to get fishing nets. And so they would throw the dynamite into the ocean and, you know, damage reef, potentially damage themselves. Um, and then they would collect a very small percentage of the fish that died, um, you know, by bringing it to the surface. I mean, you know, I would come in and be like very judgmental of that. But then I was like, gosh, I mean, you know, when you start to think about what is motivating this person to do that, I mean, clearly poverty is motivating that person, you know, a desire to to make money immediately. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think we've had a massive shift in how the human mind works, what the human mind's focus is. It's happened in a fairly short period of time. I think it's accelerating even more so now in places, for example, you know, even though someone like Europe or has been kind of developing or evolving for hundreds of years, places like Asia, for example, I mean, you know, their lifestyles have changed drastically in kind of under half a century, you know, going from living very rural lives in someone like Bali to now kind of being a massive hotel resort destination, you know, plastics, just insane impacts that they just don't really know how to deal with and then i mean i think as it becomes your environment becomes almost more unpleasant aren't you then going to kind of seek comfort even more in kind of material things you know so it becomes kind of an escalating vicious circle i think
0: yeah i mean i've seen so many examples of that and and heard of them around the world too everything from you know deforestation in tropical areas being fueled by people who are making the smallest amount of money from it and you know There's just there's countless uh, examples of this, and it seems to be fueled by this mindset of scarcity, which is not uh, it's not only present in what we would consider poor communities. And one of the things that I'm constantly trying to look for in the projects that I advise on and the ones that I help to promote is the aspect of the project that helps to reduce that mindset of scarcity and that urgency of needing to make the most of whatever small resources are available at the moment. Because having the luxury of a longer term vision and a feeling of security is really where being able to put your efforts into longer term visions and goals and invest in a future stems from. And it really seems to me like through these projects, by, by putting in these art installations that, I mean, you have to be careful to go down and see. It requires some equipment. It, it requires some looking. It requires some planning those come as kind of emergent properties of future thinking and investment in what is going to be of value in the future uh as as kind of the the aspect of the projects that seems to really resonate and connect with community have you seen that in practice as well
1: yeah i mean i think just yeah i mean i think to rewind i mean i think what's ha- what's happening in the world at the moment you know especially with areas where there are wonderful eco resources is you have your local community basically you've lived off that resource probably fairly successfully for you know a long time but now international business pressures are destroying those habitats at a vast rate under the umbrella of making money and so you know now a local community is actually not able to support their family from their local resource but yet it's all been justified by you know some kind of big making I mean palm oil for rainforest I mean we don't need to go any further but meanwhile that local person is seeing their habitat destroyed and as you say then we embark on the whole feeling of insecurity and and fear that that in a very real way is going to impact that local community so yeah I mean I think you know the work that we do by you know by reinvigorating a, a sense of place by you know people coming you know by allowing a local community to really do something wonderful with their local ecosystem and start to see um how actually if they invest in improving the health of that ecosystem um they now start to make money and see a healthy ecosystem so we're starting to kind of you know bring together um making money i mean it is relevant people do need to make money whether they're making money just through the physical money or a sense of value that they create in their local ecosystem that then makes people want to come and see that healthy ecosystem i mean that's what i really love you know now we're investing in in something a bit more abstract i.e. healthy ecosystem more fish healthy corals art um, you know what i love about art is it's very of the moment you know people um you know, one of the the reasons I explore using art as a visual languaging is that, you know, the intellect of the mind, you know, is is limited in, in, in to a certain extent. And when you experience an artwork, you know, it, it inspires you, it brings you into the present moment, it, it basically helps reignite or strengthen that connection with the moment. So yeah, I mean, we're just creating a little kind of super fun playground where people can enjoy yet the ripples out from that in the sense of making the community feel proud, you know, feeling that people want to come and be be part of that, that we, they, you know, people are now respecting and admiring what they're doing. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just really beautiful to see really.
0: Well, so tell me more about that. I'm sure you've kept in touch with the communities and the projects that you've installed in the past. Can you talk a little bit about how the relationship to those has grown and evolved since you've sort of moved on to different aspects of what you do and t- some of the benefits that it's brought
1: to the community in its installation as well? I mean my most the most successful project is I mean I think you know I mean, I've done quite a few different projects and it's so fascinating because yeah some you know just disappear like you know you kind of do a sculpture and 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 it's not managed well and it kind of you know you you lose connection with that person and it just kind of disappears you know that for me is an example of an unsuccessful relationship you know um so i have a few of those and then i also have you know Pamutaran is my my best i mean they it's just such a best practice um and they have a they have it's the, the location of their conservation project is very close to the beach so you know nice easy access um and they have a, a little center where some local guys have had an amazing career really just building up from just being you know f- probably for fishermen families and they they've worked at this bio rock center and built up a real reputation within the community and um, one they've won awards um i mean you know it's rippled out so that they've now become spokespeople to projects throughout the rest of Indonesia. Um, and yeah, I mean, just on a personal level, um, Kaman, um, who's the head of the center, I mean, i I've, he's I've formed a very good friendship with him, watching him kind of evolve and grow and, you know, be part of this project that not only has, has helped on a local level, but they've also, you know, been able to kind of spread that information out through the rest of Indonesia, which is a huge archipelago and yeah, just and been really lovely to kind of empower somebody else to kind of make change and do good. And so through that experience, what
0: would you consider to be the most successful aspects that you hope to install with your projects um, that are sort of emergent properties of the, the effort of bringing community together around the project to begin with?
1: Well, I think the most, for me, the most important thing is, is first of all, you have to um, establish it's something called marine spatial planning. So this is a kind of new languaging, which is, I mean, in one way, is the, you know, the ocean didn't belong to anybody. You know, it's kind of borderless. But now, you know, we do need to have some sense of planning. So first of all, marine spatial planning is that you kind of look at a body of water and, you know, analyze usage and basically designate Um, You know, well, if you're doing dredging there, you probably shouldn't do that, you know, but we will allow some kind of artisanal scallop fishing, for example, in England and here is going to be diving. But, you know, this area here, I want a no take zone. So for me, I always like to establish some form of marine protected area. I want an area where, you know, for a while, everybody's committed to just leaving that area alone. And that's kind of like my starting point, really, you know, Um, and then getting everybody to agree to that is just a really wonderful way of, you know, getting everybody to be kind of focused on that, you know, and some education needs to occur to the fishermen, particularly that the understanding that by stopping fishing there, yes, they can't fish there for a while. Often there's not that much fish in these areas anyway now, so it's not super difficult, but, you know, you need that commitment. That's my kind of primary focus. Um, that's a really good binding element you know and then and then yeah and then you know you need to make sure whatever destructive practices that were occurring stop you know you can't really implement a conservation project until you stop the destructive techniques it just doesn't seem to be much point so in Asia for example there's a they use they do a lot of something called cyanide fishing Um, so you want to make sure that that's not happening Um, and then you're going to need to kind of start to look at what the community needs as a consequence of those measures. I mean, you know, there will be people making money off cyanide fishing. How do you address that? Um, So, you know, working for me, as I say, working with a good local body that uh, managing that marine park is really vital as well. I need somebody there who has got good community relationships and can speak the language, you know, and they're the ones on the ground really dealing with the day to day. Issues, um, so yeah. I mean, for me, the most important thing is to stop, just, just to stop the destructive whatever destructions happening to that ecosystem, and then set up a kind of protective area that everybody's going to agree to and get, you know, your local community to be your best guardians.
0: I'm very glad you brought that up because I've definitely heard of and seen a lot of projects that try and get started before actually working on the root problem or removing it from creating more damage. And when you try and, uh, I guess, stem the flow of something so large and destructive through some sort of Band-Aid method, it always ends up being sort of a a no-win sum or um, it can be very discouraging. And I'm glad that you put the emphasis on, I guess, removing the destructive practice from the equation before you start to fix things. And I suppose with your experience and from what you've learned in these different projects, what advice would you give to someone who is maybe taking on a regenerative project, not necessarily working with ocean ecosystems, but any that involve a community like this? What advice would you give them on how to get started and perhaps some expectations to go in with to avoid disappointment or unnecessary difficulty?
1: I think... um... I think listen to your community. I mean, you know, some of the local older folk are gonna know that habitat way better than you're gonna know it, you know? So I think going in with an element of humility and a sense of openness, I'm not going in, I mean, going in with a desire to to do whatever you're doing, but certainly to be open and to listen and to allow people to be heard, because essentially what you're going in and healing is not just, if you just want to go and heal the ecosystem, go and buy yourself a massive plot of uninhabited land and manage an uninhabited plot of land. If you're going in to restore an ecosystem that has a relationship to people, that's what needs to be healed. The healing, the people need to be healed and their relationship that they're now um, um, experiencing or they're now kind of implementing onto their environment needs to be healed. So, you know to restore an ecosystem you need to restore the human relationship to the ecosystem and you'll probably find that there'll be some healing that needs to happen within that people community as well so that would be my thought you know as i said if you want to just do an ecosystem don't go and get involved with people you know if you want to go and do one where there's a big relationship between the people and the land you're going to have to address that probably even more than you some even more than some of the i mean we pretty much know what we need to do (laughs) to heal the land we know what we need to do you know that's not really anything new there how we do that is the challenge so that's what we're still learning and exploring really
0: that's wonderful advice and see that before we wrap up can you tell our listeners where they can find out more about the marine foundation and the rest of your work
1: yes well we we have a website the Marinefoundation.org, um so you can go and check out projects there and photos and all the amazing stuff that we've done around the world. Um, at the moment, my most ex- I'm working with Fabien Cousteau. Um, we're planning on doing an amazing project in Curacao, so we're fundraising for that at the moment. So that's through org. Um, I am going to be creating a, a new goddess sculpture. She's Yamaya, so she's a Afro-Caribbean Goddess. Um, I like to work with visual archetype. You know, so one of the reasons I love to do goddesses is that the goddess is, you know, comes from a time in human history where we had a much greater connection to nature and we revered that connection and honoured what nature provided for us. And so um, she's going to be kind of a sentient. She's going to be positioned in this coral garden that we're going to be creating in Carousel. Um, where we are working with some pretty innovative techniques that Fabian is pioneering with a, a, a guy from uh, the, a New York aquarium called Justin Muir. So we're going to be working on some different ways of, of propagating corals. Um, and then this is all part of a big fantastic vision that Fabian has of um, Following on from his grandfather's legacy of placing a, um, You know creating an underwater lab proteus. So and um, This will also be located in Carousel, but um, may obviously deeper and much more inaccessible than the, the the coral gardening and sculpture project that I'm working on. So that's where we're really at at the moment. Yeah, and always looking for new partners and new projects around the world. So I, I always invite anybody who wants to speak to me and and communicate with me. You know, feel free to.
0: Wow. See, that all sounds really exciting, and I just want to say one more thing: is that. As much as we've talked about community dynamics and ecosystems here, the sculptures themselves are really stunning. You've done a fantastic job on those. And I really encourage people to take a look at these websites just to see how visually engaging these projects are as much as all of the other effects that they have uh, that we've already talked about. so Thank you um, very much. Yeah, fantastic work. (laughs) I'm really looking forward to seeing the rest of these projects come to fruition. And I hope we can stay in touch. It's been great speaking with you.
1: Absolutely. Well, thank you very much and and continue with with all your good work too. Thank you.
0: All right, that wraps things up for this week's episode. If you enjoyed this interview and want to find more like it, as well as articles and other resources, you can find the full library of previous podcasts at AbundantEdge.com. The best part is that you can search by category, topics, or keywords on our brand new website rather than scrolling through more than 140 interviews. I've spoken to experts on everything from growing your own food, building homes from natural materials, beekeeping, vermicompost, permaculture design techniques, and so much more. Before we go, I just want to say thank you so much to those of you who have taken the time to reach out to me via comments and emails. Your input helps a lot in making this show the open conversation and exchange of ideas that it's meant to be, and it helps me to make better content on the topics that you're interested in. If you have any insights, advice, suggestions, or questions, be sure to send them to me at info@abundantedge.com, and I'll look forward to being in touch. New episodes come out every Friday like clockwork, so don't forget to subscribe to the show through our website or through your favorite podcast streaming platform, and I'll catch you on next week's show.